I invite you to take out a Bible and turn with me to the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah. That's where we're going to spend pretty much all our time, with the exception of a few references uh, in the lesson this morning, in the book of Jonah. Jonah quickly becomes one of the uh, favorite stories in a children's Bible class. Whenever you get a Bible class that's all about a guy getting swallowed by a giant fish and living to tell the tale, and then getting thrown up on the beach, I mean, that's just perfect for kids. Every kid loves that story. Um, we're getting some of that feedback, yes? Is that better? All right. If it keeps ringing, you might go turn down the... Um, the pulpit mic, I think it's labeled that way. Is that better? Everyone on the hearing system, can you still hear me okay? All right, good. Um, as you get older and you, you read the book of Jonah again and again and, and come to appreciate it from an adult's point of view, you, you come to realize just how odd the story of Jonah is for other reasons as well. Not just for the fact that a man got swallowed by a giant fish. And thrown up on the beach. Um, But also because Jonah is just one of the strangest prophets in all the Bible. Uh, He's one of the prophets that doesn't seem to be on the same page as the God who sent him at all. And it's really odd. Um, You think about some of the other prophets in the Bible. Think about Jeremiah, who is found weeping and pleading with the people of God to come back and be faithful to the Lord. When Isaiah is read, you see Isaiah talking about God's plans for his people and how his people have not cooperated with that plan. And why can't they see what's going on? With Hosea, he's another very intriguing prophet. As God uses Hosea's own marriage to reflect the disappointment that God has with his people. And how deeply Hosea is affected by all of what he's enduring in that very personal way serves to illustrate how deeply God is affected by what's going on. Jonah, on the other hand, doesn't have any of that kind of attachment with God that we ever see on display in the book. It's a short book, just four chapters, and by the time you get to the end of it, you're past the, the, the giant fish pit and still wondering, what was that all about? So in the book of Jonah, one of the things that is noteworthy about it, surprising about it, is that the story of Jonah's preaching is very minor. Um, the only time we ever hear Jonah preach is in chapter 3 and verse 4. And it comes out in English to be about eight words. Where he declares to Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Arguably, he does more preaching in his prayer when he thanks God for sending the giant fish to rescue him from the depths of the ocean. than he actually, we hear from him in speaking to the people to whom he was sent. Eight English words is all we get to hear of Jonah's preaching. We're going to study the book of Isaiah when the new year comes around. It's page after page of Isaiah's teaching. Well, the book of Jeremiah records the preaching career of 23 years. But for Jonah, 
eight words in English tell us all of the preaching that we're, we're shown or that, that, that is revealed to us. You never get to hear any of his other oracles, his reasoning, what he said during his time there in Nineveh. You never hear any more than that. Just that eight word summary that it's time to repent. And this book is the only place where he's quoted. So it's not like the book of Isaiah that's just quoted left and right all throughout the New Testament, for example. It's, it's right here. By the time you get to the end of the book of Jonah, you realize this book isn't really about the preaching of Jonah at all. It's not so much about his message one bit. It's about the messenger. The book of Jonah is all about the attitude of this particular servant of God that he had, ultimately about God himself. And about how this servant of God disagreed with the God he was supposed to serve. How this servant of God complained about how God wasn't doing the right thing when it came to the people of Nineveh specifically. That's what the book of Jonah is about. Um, we mentioned, I think it was either last week or the week before, uh, as we were studying Paul's sea voyage and the shipwreck that eventually occurs there, some of the similarities between Paul's uh, journey at sea and Jonah's journey at sea. But we mentioned especially how those two are noteworthy to consider because of the, the contrast. Paul is going uh, because of where God has sent him, and Paul's going to go. Uh, Jonah, for his part, gets on the ship that he's ultimately chucked overboard from because he's trying to get away from what God wants him to do. And I find it fascinating that here in the midst of the collection of the books of the prophets, the collection of messages that God wanted the nations to hear, right in the middle of all of that is the story of a man who did not want to preach. The story of someone who didn't think God was doing things the right way. Who, think, who thought God needed to, to straighten out the way he was handling something. And perhaps if we'll think carefully about this subject for just a few minutes this morning, we might find a relevant lesson from this book about the, the servant of God for those of us who are trying to be servants of God. Sometimes perhaps we get the wrong attitude about God. Um, and sometimes perhaps we're not all that different from Jonah. Where we find ourselves disagreeing with God. Um, if you've been in any kind of immensely difficult situation, I wonder if you've ever had the thought that I've had, of why does it have to be like this? Even worse, we've known people both inside and outside of, of, the, the, uh, of the Lord's church who have gotten angry with God, just flat out angry with him, and turned their backs on him in indignation, saying, God has not done right by me. And accused God of not acting correctly. Jonah's like that. He has a, a very serious gripe with the ways of God. And yet, here's this odd little book. Written for our edification. Written to teach us something about, about God and our service to him. So I'd like for us to think this morning about Jonah. And I want to think about some of the things that he has to show to us. Of course, you're familiar with the story. In the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, God says to Jonah, I want you to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah, however, rose to flee to Tarshish, 
and that's just a hard one for me to say, from the presence of the Lord. We don't hear Jonah say anything on that occasion, but he is speaking volumes by his actions. Jonah's response to God is, I don't want to do that. Get somebody else for that job. Now, maybe he thinks, you know what, I'll go this way and I'll teach and preach over here instead. I tend to doubt it. But ultimately, his conclusion is, I'm not going over there and doing what you've told me to do. And he tries his very best to refuse and to avoid what God tells him. Let me ask you before we continue on. I hear feedback. Do any of you? It's just me? Okay. Um, You'll recall God prepares this great fish to swallow him up, rescue him from the, the depths, and spit him out on the beach. And ultimately, he realizes he cannot escape. And he is at least thankful in that moment for what God has done for him. And he's learning something of a lesson the very hard way. But he still goes on to have just a bewildering reaction. Um, you might recall how when, when Jeremiah is called to be a prophet, he says, God, I'm too young. He has reservations about his talents and about his status and his abilities to accomplish the mission God has set before him. Jonah doesn't seem to have that problem, at least in this text. His problem is very different. He says, I'm just not going to do it. You want this done. I don't think it should be done. Go find somebody else. I'm going somewhere else. And then when you get to the end of the book and, and, and Nineveh repents, Jonah doesn't like it. The whole city of Nineveh, at least in summary, has this unexpected positive reaction to the preaching of the most reluctant prophet the Bible tells us about. And he's upset. Because naturally, to their repentance and their, their, uh, their um, remorse, God has compassion. And he relents from the destruction that he was threatening against them. And Jonah, in chapter 4 and verse 2, prays, Please, Lord, is, is this not what I said when I was still in my country? And if you wanted to rephrase that into the modern day speech, says, I knew you wouldn't punish them. I knew that this was going to be just a huge waste of my time. I didn't want to come here in the first place. I knew that I would preach and you wouldn't do anything about it. He doesn't like it at all that God has changed his plan for the people of Nineveh. And in both instances of Jonah's behavior, both his initial reaction and then even here after all he's been through, I want to suggest to you there's a common element and that's he thinks God is, is going about it the wrong way. This isn't the right way to do things. First of all, I don't want to be a part of this. And second of all, I know you're not going to do what you say anyway. You say you're going to judge them. I know that's not going to happen. Uh, I, I just want to, uh, it's just going to come out to be something that's frustrating for me. And if I had my way, something else entirely would be happening. We wouldn't be doing things this way. He doesn't like what God does. So you look at someone like Jonah, and I think the first thing that's got to come to mind when you compare him to the rest of the prophets that you're familiar with is what happened to this guy? What got into his head that has him thinking this way? Not to mention the question of why did God pick this man to be a prophet? Which is a strange question to consider too. But first of all, what went wrong with Jonah? What happened to this guy? What, what goes wrong with people today like him that may have the same attitude with God? That God is not right. He is not doing things the right way. I want to suggest to you three things. 
that I think lie at the heart of, of the difficulty Jonah is having. And that is, first of all, he does not know God. He really doesn't know God anywhere near the way he thinks he does. You might wonder, how exactly can that be? God's called him to be a prophet. You would think Jonah's got to have a certain religious zeal about him. And, and, and yes, Jonah is no kinds of stranger to, to following God's law. God doesn't just pick him up off the street out of some foreign country. He is one of God's people. He does know the law. He's concerned for righteousness. You see that in this book. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, he really does not know the God he serves at all. When you look at other characters of the Bible, it seems to be not at all an uncommon problem. That sometimes that God's chosen people, his servants that he sends forth to do this job or that, do not understand what God is up to. You remember when John the Baptist in the Gospels uh, when he's in prison, he sends messengers to Jesus to ask, are you the Messiah? Or should we look for somebody else? Because this doesn't seem to be going right. He didn't understand. Peter, in Matthew 16, when Jesus says, now we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed there. Peter says, not if I can help it. Not if I have anything to do about it. He doesn't understand. He doesn't see what the plan of God is all about. He doesn't understand the thinking of God. Um, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter receives his vision, arise, kill and eat. And then you're going to go to the household of Cornelius. Peter says, I, I can't do that, Lord. I've never done that kind of thing. I can't do that now. He doesn't understand. And Jonah doesn't either thing with Jonah is his problem is not that he doesn't see the, the end of God's plan and his purpose. That's Peter's problem. He doesn't see where this is going. He doesn't quite grasp what it truly means to bring in all of the nations into this kingdom. Uh, seeing where all the, the end of God's plan and his purposes is John the Baptist's problem. He doesn't see how his imprisonment and, and all of the... the um, the, the impediments that the, the message is facing from Jesus and his disciples, how that fits in with, the, with his idea of the kingdom of God. Jonah, on the other hand, I think has an arguably worse problem. He just simply cannot see who God is himself. He can't see the character and the nature of God. There is a great deal in your Bible about knowing God, um, which is, of course, not just some kind of emotional or intellectual exercise getting to know God having a, a depth of relationship with your creator drawing near to him in prayer and with his word and allowing his character and his will and his ways and wisdom to fill your hearts and minds and thoughts and words and ways that's not somehow the icing on the cake that is the core of Christianity Getting to know God is not just knowing a whole bunch of different facts about what's in the scriptures. It is living out those scriptures. Knowing God has everything to do with who you are from when you wake up to go to sleep to when you go to sleep. Knowing God isn't some kind of theological subject. It is supposed to be the definition of who you are and what you do. And you and I can never be effective servants of God if we don't deeply know God 
And that's part of what's wrong with Jonah. Um, Jeremiah, in, in his book, over and over again, he, he com- complains about this very thing. In the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 9 and verse 2, just to give you a small sample of his preaching, this is what God says. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. So if you've ever been on a road trip and wished out loud for a rest stop to just drop the kids off at and continue on your way with the trip, that's what God is saying. I wish I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place just to leave you people and be done with it. For they're all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Back in chapter 6 of Jeremiah, there's something interesting to read in verse 20. He says, what use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land? Talking about things that they would bring in your burnt offerings. And he says, they're not acceptable, nor are your sacrifices pleasing to me. So you go and get frankincense from Sheba, perhaps a particularly noteworthy place to get some of the, the finest quality. Or sweet cane from a distant land. Stuff you've gone through a great deal of effort to procure. And then you bring it and you sacrifice it to me. That would seem on the surface to be a a wonderful thing. But here they are offering incense to God. And all these sacrifices and whatnot. Trying to worship God. And yet God says what what use are they to me. When you don't have the first clue as to who I am. You're offering all this praise and worship and sacrifice and then you live the rest of your life oblivious to who I am and and, and what I want from you. So they're religious people and yet God is quite unhappy with them. So what had happened with uh, the children of of Israel there in Jeremiah's day was they're doing things according to their own thoughts. They were working according to their idea of what God was like, and they didn't have any idea of how offensive their actions were in God's eyes. Um, I used to be a much larger fan of the group Pentatonix than I am these days. If you've heard their music, they're an acapella group that just went wildly popular in the last 10 years. I've always liked that kind of music, and I like that group. Um, I always knew there was some immorality present in their group as a whole and then also in a couple of the members in particular. Um, but now they kind of trumpet that immorality and they just, they just shove it down your throats and it's hard to enjoy their stuff for me as much as it used to be. Um, as it happens yesterday, I was listening to the, the Christmas album that they just put out and they follow up, that they, they included in their album... Um, Amazing Grace, which just kind of stunned me that um, they would sing that song. They've also sung Mary, Did You Know? And it's just hard to hear them sing that when later on, because of the, the makeup and the lifestyles of the people in that group, they have a song sung by a boy about his relationship with a boy and hoping that it lasts through to the next Christmas, etc., etc. And so it's just, here's this amazing grace you're singing. With all the passion that you pour into every one of your songs, sounds like this beautiful offering of worship. And then here is here's this thing right down the, the, the track list. 
here you are trying to offer these these praises and sacrifices to God, and by the way that you're living and by your own actions and words here and, and, and just two or three clicks of the of, of you know next track, you, you don't have the first clue as to who he is. That's the same problem in Jeremiah's day, and God's quite displeased with what they're doing. Um, as they're living according to their own idea of what God is like. And not appreciating how offensive their actions are in God's eyes. So they just, in Jeremiah's time, they just went on sacrificing until Jeremiah shows up and says, Don't you understand? God doesn't want these from you. And if you knew anything about God, if you knew God himself, you would know that. One of the great characteristics of the messianic age, one of the the shining points of the, 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 the light that was to come, God says in Jeremiah 31 and verse 34 is that then all my people will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9, when Paul is pleading with the Galatians to leave some false doctrines that they've heard and come back to the truth, he says in verse 8, Formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's idols. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? You notice Paul's way of describing a Christian. You have come to know God. That's what you are. In John 17, when Jesus prays his prayer shortly before he's arrested and taken to the cross, he says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is the essence, the way to eternal life, knowing God and the one he sent. And Jonah's problem, first and foremost, is he doesn't know God. That's where he makes his his first fatal mistake. Something else that's wrong with Jonah is that apart from not knowing God in general, he does not understand God's love and compassion towards sinners. You'll remember, of course, the times that Jesus eats with sinners. Jonah seems to be something of a Pharisee in training. I think he had a real problem with that. Jonah has this sense that that God might indeed relent on the promise he's made to destroy Nineveh. And because of them being basically enemies for a long, long time, Jonah's in the camp that's rooting for Nineveh's destruction. And he just knows that's the kind of thing God would do. He would relent and not destroy them. So in Jonah 4 verse 2, Jonah says, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knows God has a history of being gracious and compassionate, loving and kind, and he does not wish to punish people. But he obviously has no understanding of why God is that way. As a matter of fact, when you read this here in in Jonah 4 and verse 2, I, I, I knew, I know that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and, and, and loving. I know you relent from disaster. You know that usually when we read that, it's, it's stated in, in admiration that the great God of all creation would be that way. 
You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are gracious and merciful to the thousandth generation. God is usually praised for that. Do you get the idea that Jonah's almost using it as a complaint? It's like it's a flaw in God's character. That it's his, he's at fault to, to show grace like he does. I knew you wouldn't go through it. I knew you wouldn't punish these people. I knew that you wouldn't come around and come through in the end and do what you said you were going to do because I knew, after all, you'd end up showing them mercy and loving kindness. By the end of the book of Jonah, it's really clear what Jonah wanted. He wanted to see these people punished. He was glad that God was threatening to to render judgment against them. And you see what he admits here in chapter 4 and verse 2. As I said in chapter 3, the people of Nineveh repent of the preaching of Jonah. And it's interesting, you actually hear more preaching from the king of Nineveh in the book of Jonah than you do from Jonah himself. The king of Nineveh tells his people, we've got to repent, we've got to put on sackcloth and ashes, everyone has to repent from his way, and then perhaps God will relent and withdraw his anger. Jonah doesn't say any of that, at least as far as is recorded for us. The king says that. So these people, as Jesus would go on to say, deserve some credit. They listen to the word of God as minimally as Jonah appears to have given it to them and they repent. And it says in chapter 4 and verse 1, this greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Now there's a lot going on in this situation, a lot of context to all this, but can you imagine having a Bible study with somebody? It succeeds and you're angry about it. It's hard to imagine. But now imagine there's someone in your life that has wronged you profoundly. And you find out that they've gone on and they've studied with somebody and they've become a Christian. And now you don't get to be angry with them anymore for what they've done. They've been forgiven by God. They ought to be forgiven by you. And that's basically what's got Jonah all riled up here. Many, many, many offenses done against his people by the people of Nineveh and and their empire. Um, so he doesn't want these people to be saved. He doesn't want them spared from destruction. He wants them to see the punishment he thinks they're due. And then what he says in, in chapter 4 and verse 2, that first start of the phrase, in order to forestall this, I fled. So why does Jonah get in the boat and run away? It's not just because he doesn't like the idea of preaching to these people. He says, I was burning time. I didn't want these people to have an opportunity to repent. I didn't want them to have the time to hear the word of God. I was stalling. So that you wouldn't have any choice but to go ahead and judge them. I didn't want to lift them up out of that pit. I wanted them to die there. He does not want God to relent. He doesn't want these wicked people spared from their destruction. He doesn't want them being anything other than wicked sinners. Getting their their just comeuppance. He doesn't want them to come to know God. And so he does not preach to them so that they could be saved. At least initially. Let them die. They deserve it is the prophet of God's attitude. He has none of the love of God in him for these people. A little bit in the book of Jonah, it almost seems to me like he delights in being the guy who gets to announce the destruction. I don't know how you read it, but there seems to be a portion of Jonah that enjoys being this messenger of doom. Like he takes some kind of strange pleasure in the fact that that Um, you know, God is angry with you and you're going to get it. 
And then he gets angry when God doesn't follow through on that promise. And of course, Jonah's not the only person who's ever had that sort of attitude. And maybe you and I have had that before. Um, there are some people like that. They like to condemn Facebook, politics, all that stuff. Just slamming their Facebook feeds with condemnations of the other side. And, and not in the sense of, let's talk about the morality of the choices that you're making and the sides that you support. But in just how dumb those political opponents are. They just like to condemn and their Facebook feed is filled with it. There are folks who make a habit and even make a career out of condemning other people. And sometimes maybe we make an evening out of listening to them. There seems to be with Jonah some ego involved. He gets a boost in his own pride because it makes him feel superior to get to contemn the wicked and speak the threats of God to them. They're the ones who are going to be punished, and I get to bring the message to them. We're the righteous people of God. These are the evil, wicked sinners, and it's about time they got theirs. There are people that are like that these days. They go around condemning everybody else, and maybe for the same reason, that it somehow makes them feel superior because relative to the one they've put down, they now feel lifted up. It's tempting sometimes to criticize others so that you can take your focus off of yourself. Jesus talks about how the Pharisees are like this. In Luke 11, verse 42, this is Luke's version of the woes against the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says, you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You don't care about the love of God. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus heals people on the Sabbath day, you remember how the Pharisees react to that? The audacity that he would do so. And yet they have the audacity to get mad at somebody for healing someone. What's their message? You've got other days to do your healing. Do it on some day other than the Sabbath. Excuse me, the healing. They... How they're blind to that, I don't know. But then they also just don't understand how much God loves people. All they see is Sabbath day, Sabbath day, Sabbath day, and their idea of what it means to violate it. Jonah has that same kind of one-dimensional, one-sided view of God. God is judge. God's the one who enacts justice. God is supposed to be merciless towards people who are in evil. Now, uh, partly Jonah's right. God is certainly a God of justice. In Deuteronomy 32, when Moses is talking to the new generation... He reminds them of that characteristic of the God they serve. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. There's none more just than God. In Psalm 97, in verse 2, Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So Jonah is right that God is a God of justice. But there is more to God than just that. And to have that view of God and no other picture of him is a distortion of who God is. So the Bible says plainly, twice in 1 John 4 verse 8 and again in verse 16, that God is love. So yes, God is a God of justice, but God is also a God of love, and he loves his people. And he loves people and wants those who are not following him to do so. 
sorry, we had a car pull up and act odd, but they're leaving now. That love that God has for people drives God to plead with them, to preach to them, to encourage them, to beg them so that they'll repent. And then God can be with them. Now, certainly, if someone refuses all of that, everything that God has done for them, then God will prove himself to be absolutely just. But the love of God compels him to do everything that he can to encourage people to avoid that, if at all possible. Love and justice are sometimes seen as if they're opposites, as if they're mutually exclusive, and that's just not true. You especially see that in God. His purity demands his justice, but his pure love for people drives him to tell them how to escape the verdict that's in store for them and to pay whatever price he could. And it's Jonah's role in all of that to pay something of a price and to go tell these people how to avoid the judgment that's coming to them. That they need to change their lives so that God will relent because God is a God of justice and if you go on sinning, you're not going to escape. But God loves you and so he sent me and he wants you to do what's right. And God, Jonah, he doesn't want to do any of that. He doesn't appreciate the personal interest that God has in these people. And when you look at the end of the book, that's what God is trying to teach Jonah. He, he sits down, Jonah does, after all of it's said and done, he sits down outside the city and he waits to see what's going to happen. I'm not exactly sure what he's thinking there. Maybe he's thinking this repentance it's not going to take and hopefully they'll still be judged after all. If I've got any hope left in this awful series of events, maybe, just maybe, they'll go back into sin. God will destroy them and I'll get to see it. God appoints a plant to grow up and shade Jonah and relieve him from the great discomfort he's inflicted upon himself by sitting there to watch all of this. And it makes Jonah very happy. Then God appoints a worm to attack the plant and the plant withers and dies. And Jonah is, is all hotted up and he's just ready to pass out and he's begging to die. Quite dramatic. And he says, it's better for me to die than to live. And God says to Jonah, did you like that plant? And Jonah says, yeah, I liked it. It was giving me shade. It was a good thing. God says, you cared for that. Don't you understand, Jonah, that I care for these people? Can't you understand that the way you liked a plant and appreciated what it did for you, that I have far more interest in the souls of Nineveh, that I'd be sorry to see them gone, if you're sorry to see a tree go. I'd be upset if they were destroyed. I don't want that to happen. So God enjoys his fellowship with his people. It's why he made us in the first place. Because of course God could have sat up in heaven. He didn't need anything at all. But he wanted us. And because he loves us and he loves people and he loves to have relationships with people. Even though the Bible is filled with God rendering judgment on those who insist on doing evil. It also is very clear that God does not enjoy that at all. He doesn't enjoy having to enact justice upon a sinner, contrary to popular opinion both then and now. In Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel's contemporaries are in captivity. Ezekiel's there with them and they're complaining about all manner of things. And one of them is, I guess we're suffering because that's just what God likes to do. He likes to make people suffer and just sit up there in heaven and kind of zap people and inflict judgment on them. And Ezekiel says twice, 
in chapter 18 and then chapter 33, the words of God that came to him, I take no pleasure in the death of him who dies. I've never enjoyed it. It's kind of the quintessential example of a parent saying, this hurts me more than it hurts you. It truly does. And Jonah doesn't understand that about God. And I think a part of that is not just because he doesn't know who God is, but also because of who Jonah was. This is the final point. We'll make it brief. Jonah seems to have... Well, we talked about, uh, what was it? Wendell in class mentioned some folks um, who are liars having a hard time trusting other people because they project themselves onto those other folks and expect to be lied to in return. Jonah has such a harsh view of God, possibly because Jonah himself seems to be a pretty harsh man. You see Jonah's character there in chapter 4 when he complains. And he thinks he has the right to criticize God. God said to him in verse 9, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah, just in the height of arrogance, says, Yes, I do. I've got plenty of good reason. You haven't done right here. He's this self-centered man who in many ways just simply cares only about his own pleasure. He gets more joy out of a shade tree than he does out of a city of pagans repenting. He has no real thought to spare for the welfare of these people. He just wants them to pay for all the things that have been done before. He's got no sense of gratitude for all that he has from God. He just seems to have this kind of prevalent mentality of being entitled to it all. He's a child of God. He's someone who's faithful. Things are supposed to go right for him. And they're not supposed to go right for the enemies of God. So when the plant grows up and it shades him, you don't read of him praying there as he prayed with the the great fish. Thank you, God, for this blessing. What a wonderful thing you provided for me. He just takes it for granted. And he doesn't say a thing until God takes it away. And sometimes maybe when you look closely at this part of Jonah, you can see something of ourselves. Sometimes day after day we can live with God's blessings and not notice God's presence or his blessings until those blessings go missing. You've got this lack of gratitude in Jonah who seems to only really care for what he wants. He's made the decision, I'm going to serve God if I agree with God. If God's plans and his actions are judged by me as acceptable, then I'll go and then I'll do thus and so. So in chapter 1, God says, I want you to go and preach to this people. And Jonah says, I'm, I, I'd rather not. I don't think that's a good call. He thinks far too much of his own ideas. And God very much teaches us to have the opposite attitude. We quote often Matthew 26, verse 39, when Jesus is in the garden and he says three times that night, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, as you will. That prayer was a summary of Jesus' life that had been lived according to that principle. That, of course, wasn't the only time that Jesus had those kinds of thoughts or lived that kind of way. In John 5 and verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 6 verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So every day of his life, every thought, action, deed, reaction, emotion, all of it submitted to the will of God. 
Where we can struggle sometimes is being like Jonah in the fact that we might want to serve God on our terms. If you've ever sinned, this has been true of you. I'll live righteously, righteously, righteously up until this temptation that I want to do. And I'm going to go and do this thing. And now I've gone and I've followed after my will. So we might not feel like that describes us of I'll serve God on my terms. But if you've ever sinned, and that's all of us, then you've reached that point of God. I I will do what you want me to do. So far as I think it ought to be done, I'll go along with your plan, but only so far as it, it suits me. I'll do this, 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 and this, but, but then there's this point. And the message from the book of Jonah is that isn't going to do. God, if this is what you need me to do, if this is where you need me to go, then I will go and I will do it. And I do wonder if the reason the book of Jonah appears in our Bible isn't because it's there to teach us that lesson. Oftentimes the the book of of a prophet is about that prophet's message to the people that it's being proclaimed to. The message of that or the point of that book is about that people and the need that they have to repent of sin and to straighten up and do what's right. But Jonah is so much about Jonah. It's not really about the foreigners to whom that message is delivered. It's about those who would be the people of God having the right attitude toward God and making sure their interests are aligned with his. Making sure that God's servants are on the same page with the one they serve. And knowing the God that we serve so that we can accomplish his will in our lives. It might be... That as you're here this morning, you have not really been living the way that you ought to. And perhaps even because of something akin to the problem that Jonah was having. Maybe you have sought to serve the Lord. Maybe you've become a Christian. You you set out to serve him. But there have been points in your life that have been um, Nineveh for you. And you'll serve God up until that point. Enlighten it, but you need to repent. If you need to come to the Lord in search of of true repentance, we certainly stand ready to help you and pray with you, give whatever encouragement we can to you, if that's what you'd like for us to do. If you're not a child of God and you want to obey the gospel, we're ready to help you do that. If you need to study more about that, that's a study we would love to have. If the time has come for you to, to bend the knee, not only in allegiance to King Jesus, but also in a submission to God's will, to live for him from now on and no longer for yourself, then we invite you to answer the invitation of the good news of Jesus Christ and acknowledge he is king, God is your creator, and it's time to serve him. We'd love to see you do that this morning and make that decision. However we can help you, won't you let us know while we stand and sing?